and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. It is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. And uh, although I missed Friday the 13th yesterday, I uh, thought I'd look at the Halloween franchise. I mean, uh, again, this is, this is a topic that's been pretty much beaten to death. I mean, how much more can you talk about Halloween and and all of that? And and I'm, I'm not looking at, um, again, cinema is not film reviews, so it's not looking at, at reviewing every film in the franchise. But I, I thought this time around, because we do have two sequels uh, that, that are being filmed back to back, and uh, the franchise was basically resurrected in, in 2018 last year uh, with Halloween, um, with Jamie Lee Curtis once again returning to the role of Laurie Strode in the original timeline. Uh, I, I just thought it'd be interesting to, to kind of take a look at where cynicism has kind of played into this franchise. And if you listen to episode 11, which I talked about the Friday the 13th franchise and talked about why... Um, it it is kind of stumbled. The franchise has stumbled, and and as we know, right now is caught up in in a lot of of uh, litigation. So there's apparently no end in sight on that at, at this time. But I guess uh, the the thing that I talked about before I get into the the meat of this podcast is is the importance of of the historical reference and context in which a film uh, is made and is released. And, and I guess the, the thing that I, I said even in, in episode 11 and, and in a couple other episodes, and that is, is, is Michael Myers still relevant? And, and I, I have to ask that question, aside from the fact that it, it almost seems like we're cannibalizing our culture. Aside from my generation, the Gen Xers and, and arguably the Boomers, I, I don't know who the 2018 Halloween was meant for. I mean, you have a, a whole generation of, of, of viewers now that think that Rob Zombie's Halloween is the original and, and some that don't even know there was a 1978 original or the fact that they've seen it and they've dismissed it as boring. It's not very bloody. It's not very gory. It's not very violent uh, in, in those respects. And, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts. So I guess I'm asking, is Michael Myers in the Halloween franchise relevant anymore and if it is how and and just how does michael resonate with a brand new audience and and that's the thing is this what nobody really wants to say and that is 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 halloween continuing to be made for basically fanboys and and the convention goers stuck on nostalgia is is that the fuel for michael myers and the halloween franchise which could be argued the same thing for the friday the 13th or or nightmare on elm street franchise Look, when when news of of Halloween 2018 broke, I mean, it also basically broke the internet, and people went nuts, and and they were saying, you know, oh my God, you know, Blumhouse has it, and they're they're going to run with it, and and at that time, I thought, well, this is cool, let's let's see what they do with it, uh, but my my also deep reaction also was, where are they going to run with it? Like to where? I mean, there's nothing wrong with what Blumhouse did and and is doing. I mean, films get made, they get sequels, they get remakes, and and hats off to any franchise, man, that, that lasts 40 years and remains relevant. And, and that's what I guess this podcast is about, is the level of relevancy of the franchise is it geared more toward nostalgia. But, you know, there are a number of cinema-like elements to, to all of this. And while everyone gushed about, you know, what this means to horror and, and blah, 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 I'm going to go and look at just what this really does mean to horror. 
when when the 2018 was announced, details trickled in not not long after the initial euphoria, and 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 it was going to be as you know, would this film ignore the events after Carpenter's 1978 film, or or would it pick up after Halloween 2, the 1981 sequel? And then there was news of I, I believe it was Judy Greer joining the new film as Laurie Strode's daughter, and then that sent out you know concern among the fans and and everybody else. Will Blumhouse ignore the events of H2O and, and and then the film right after it, the what I always call the Tyra Banks one? I mean, is it just going to be Halloween 1978 and 81 and then Halloween 2018? Well, we got our answer. And the answer, of course, was is that they dropped Halloween 2. And basically, Halloween 2018 is technically Halloween 2. I, I guess really, for the sake of argument, we're going to ignore the remakes in, on this podcast real fast. And I'm going to ignore Halloween 3 because Halloween 3, which I've done a previous podcast on, really isn't Halloween 3. It has nothing to do with the franchise. And God bless Halloween 2018 for throwing in the masks and, and giving a little love toward that that much hated installment. But again, we're for the sake of this podcast, we're ignoring Halloween 3. I'm not talking about it because it has nothing to do with the original franchise. And, and speaking of, of the series of, of the franchise, it, it's my opinion that, that overall the, the franchise is a clusterfuck. I mean, it, it's definitely, in my opinion, more consistent in quality than Friday the 13th, although there was also a brief talk of, of Michael going into space in the 80s, like they sent Jason and Jason X. And, and this is not the first time that, that Curtis returned back to the series. I mean, in, in 1998, H2O ignored all the films except the first and the second one, the, the 1981 sequel. Or, or did they? Some fans then tried to connect uh, Halloween 4 and that timeline that Laurie Strode was dead and, uh, you know, Jamie Lloyd and all of that stuff. And they, they almost tried to bridge them all together and, and you know, dovetail them in, in that post-Halloween 3 world. The original 1978 film is a classic, and, and there is no need to elaborate on its importance to the genre. And Carpenter changed the industry in the slasher world and horror and the independent film world. So enough said on that. Done. If the sequels, however, were done so well, then why do we need to ignore them? Why weren't they made right in the first place? And why is there a need to go back and erase timelines? And the answer is simple, folks. The timelines aren't bad. The films are. Few would argue that the best course of action for the Jaws movies would be to make a new film that ignores all of the events after Jaws 2. That means fucking forget Jaws 3 and definitely forget shitty Jaws the Revenge. So you could do something like, you know, you acknowledge, you know, Scheider is dead, but, but Dreyfus and even Jeffrey Kramer could return. Ignore all of the events of Jaws 3 and Jaws 4 and allow the franchise to end on a high note. A lot of money was spent on those last two films on Jaws 3 and 4 and they were really expensive write-offs. Spielberg, like Carpenter, never saw a franchise after their first films. If a studio is going to insist on sequels, at least do them right. Otherwise, it's an expensive do-over. Let's look at the Halloween sequels again except for Halloween 3. Now, I've already talked about Halloween 2 a number of times, and, and I've written about it as well. And, and for me, and, and obviously Carpenter and Blumhouse and, and the others also felt, Halloween 2 is, is really where the problem started. 
I mean, the film Halloween 2 1981 gets a very large free pass from blind fandom. Halloween 2 1981 gets the support it does because it's the most loyal of the sequels. It takes place on the same night. You got Curtis and Pleasance and even Cyphers. They all return along with Michael. The problem is, is that the film isn't really all that good. It lacks the terror and suspense of Carpenter's original, and it substitutes cheap jump scares and gore. It's a flat, one-note film that does what it has to do in a paint-by-numbers situation. And for most people who love it, these fans go, oh no, it's great. Usually Halloween 2, I have found in discussions, Halloween 2 is the first of the Halloween movies that they saw. They saw it when they were a kid. They saw it whether it was on VHS or beta, or they saw it on cable, and they have this warm sentimental spot for it. Halloween 2 is a completely inferior sequel, and in my opinion, is the bad version of Halloween 1978. Halloween 2 is a sequel for sequel's sake that, that duped its fan base into thinking it was getting something good for its devotion to the first film. And that's where it gets its love. It just continues on the same night. So a lot of people just roll Halloween 1 right into Halloween 2 and kind of count them as, as a single movie. And, and that's a mistake. John Carpenter himself disavowed Halloween 2, as did producer Deborah Hill. But they knew there would be a sequel regardless of their feelings. So they got Tommy Lee Wallace to come in and, and he said that, you know, when he was given the script to Halloween 2, he said his heart sank. He said everything that we tried to avoid in Halloween was in that script. Wallace stated he declined the sequel, even though all associated knew it would be a guaranteed box office success. Halloween 2 was going to make money no matter what. And when Wallace even vocalized creative concerns while considering directing Halloween 2, he was basically told in essence to back off. He was a hired gun, come in, direct the fucking movie, and get out. The silly subplot twist of Michael and Laurie being siblings was, was a soap opera type move that tried to add some depth to a really shallow script. Carpenter and Wallace both stated that this was never intended to be part of the storyline, which I guess is why Blumhouse decided we're just going to get rid of this. And since Carpenter was said to have such a huge hands-on on 2018's Halloween installment, I'm sure he wanted to go back and just say, look, no. Now, there are all kinds of stories out there that Carpenter uh, returned, uh, took... Um, Rosenthal's work on Halloween 2, 1981, and he reshot scenes and he he added things to it. Uh, there was the call for more gore, stuff like that, because things had changed from 1978 to 1981 with the, the rise of the slasher movement. All I can tell you is, is that John Carpenter has publicly stated that Halloween 2, 1981 is, is definitely not one of his favorite films. I think that's safe to say. But look, its two main characters perished at a fiery conclusion, consequently concluding the storyline. John Carpenter and producer Deborah Hill were approached for a third installment, and as a result, agreed only if it were a whole new storyline, and that's where we got Halloween 3 from, and we know how that turned out. So again, skipping over Halloween 3, we're going right into Halloween 4, which I feel is one of the most cynical of all the films in the franchise. It might even be more cynical than Halloween 2. So Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers made it very clear. They're not screwing up like Friday the 13th did. They're bringing their monster back and they're making it very clear. Just as Jason Lives said that Jason is back in, in Friday the 13th 6, Halloween 4 made it very clear that Michael Myers had returned. 
Now, the executive producer of, of, Hallow- of the Halloween series and, and Halloween 4, Mustafa Akkad, I mean, he said this. He said, I just went back to the basics of Halloween on Halloween 4, and it was the most successful. Look, he understood formula. He got it. Bring back Michael. That's what people wanted to see. People were really pissed about Halloween 3. So they took a page from the Friday the 13th playbook, like I said, and that is don't make a sequel in a franchise without its most popular character. Jason Voorhees was killed off in Friday the 13th Part 4, if you remember. Corey Feldman finished him off. And Paramount got a financial punch in the nose with their fifth installment, A New Beginning, with Friday the 13th. And they quickly rectified this mistake by bringing Jason back to life in the aptly named Jason Lives. If you remember, lightning struck him and somehow put his head back on. So that was amazing. Jason was back, and that's all you needed to know. Friday the 13th, a new beginning, was new Coke, and we all know how that turned out. Halloween 4, Phil, Halloween 4 gets its free pass because it went right back to classic Coke formula. This slap-job fourth Halloween film made sure to let fans know that Michael was back. And yes, he was shot twice in the head. Yes, his eyes were blown out and engulfed in flames at the end of part two. He clearly perished with his doctor at the end of Halloween 2, but hey, it's Hollywood, man. The producers knew the fans would return if the Golden Goose did as well. It was like a big safety hug for horror fans. Yes, yes, we know we hurt you with Season of the Witch, but it's going to be okay now, we promise. Shh. Myers somehow regenerated his sight. His skin was healed of third-degree hellfire burns. He, He found another mask, which, by the way, is the worst looking in the series. It looks like a Party City knockoff. And he got a new set of coveralls. He goes right back to what made him comfortable. It was all just how we left it. And Dr. Loomis was back with nary a scar for being engulfed in a room of oxygen-fueled flames. Pleasance gave his Greek chorus doctor a limp and a cane, and, and the makeup department slapped on, if I remember right, some facial and hand scarring, I, I guess to account for, you know, being engulfed in an entire emergency room uh, full of, of fire. Wardrobe even got him his trademark Columbo trench coat back. It's almost like a setting at a holiday table. I mean, you, you check the settings, the glasses, you run by the food, you stand back and look at the table and, and silently and proudly say to yourself, it's all here. All you need are some asses in the seats. You know they'll eat it. It's what they want and they ask for every year. You follow the routine and recipe and your job is done. Jamie Lee Curtis didn't return, but but hey, two out of three wasn't bad. I mean, she was having a big career at the time. She was doing Fish Call Wanda and, and just come off of uh, Trading Places and, and all of this other stuff. I mean, <laughs> Halloween was, I'm sure, very far out of Jamie Lee Curtis's mind. But we did get a brilliant performance from Danielle Harris which is Halloween 4's saving grace. Harris plays the hidden child of Laurie Strode, and Laurie may or may not be dead, depends on the fan theory you you subscribe to, but it's here where the whole thing really starts to go off the rails. Never mind that we have the same old story as before. It's Halloween, and Michael is coming home to Haddonfield, and hilarity ensues. Daniel Harris gives a moving portrayal of, of child terror and distress. I found myself sitting in the theater. I, I saw this theatrically. And uh, I, I remember, you know, feeling for her while watching it in, in the theater. I wondered what kind of hell they put that kid through to get such a convincing performance. She is the best thing about Halloween 4. So what was the actual story? Was, was Laurie Strode really killed in a car crash? Was she in some kind of witness protection and sent her daughter away to keep her safe? The question is, why? Michael burned up. Why would Laurie think he survived? 
So she had to be dead, right? It doesn't matter. Michael has some family matters to tend to. We get a 90-minute retread of the original film, but really only the bad version of the 1978 film. It makes part two look like a classic. There really are no scares. We get some hot chick taking off her clothes and we get a poor man's sheriff bracket. Some rednecks gun Michael down on, on a cheap looking set. Donald Pleasant shrieks a lot as, as Danielle seems to repeat the evil cycle right down to her clown suit in, in the closing moments. And, and look, it should have failed. Only it didn't. The tickets sold and a sequel was quickly commissioned as Halloween was back in business. Jamie Lloyd may or may not be evil. Her mother may or may not be dead. Michael survived. We spent Halloween 5 going through it all again with Dr. Loomis trying hard to pursue his nemesis around ridiculous sets. The you know, I got to point this out here. The, the Myers house inexplicably grew over the years as, as can be seen in, in the final confrontation in Halloween 5. I mean, do you remember the house in the, in the original 1978? It was actually pretty small. And, and I know that's nitpicking compared to the cult of Thorn. And yes, a mysterious man in black boots springs Michael from prison. Now, now just bear with me here. But I got to ask this question. And I asked it while sitting in the theater watching this. But if you finally got the most famous serial killer Haddonfield has ever seen and possibly even the nation has ever seen, wouldn't you take the fucking mask off? He's sitting in the jail with the mask on. But I digress. And, and anyway, we find out Michael has some stupid tattoo and the man who jail breaks him has, has the same stupid tattoo. And Michael has some druid type backstory. And really, quite frankly, who the hell cares? By this point, it's all completely gone off the rails. And I see why they considered sending him into space. And, and where else are you going to go with this? One more film with Michael chasing the little girl with Pleasance moaning like some hobbled ghost was going to drive me nuts. And speaking of which, I sat through the sixth film that Pleasance died while making. He died just before it completed. Harris didn't return, and whether it was money or she had other obligations, she dodged a bullet. The butchered ending didn't matter. The whole thing was downright stupid, and it's amazing Paul Rudd launched a career from that silly mess that was Halloween 6. There have been several fan edits, and you can find them online in a restored director's cut, and this film still stinks. So by the mid-90s, the producers knew that Michael had blown his load and it was time to change shit up or let the series die and go away. And as luck would have it, the 20-year anniversary of Halloween was coming up and something wondrous was happening in horror. Scream hit theaters and became a surprise sensation. The film cleverly wove a mystery of, of horror tropes and cliches to have, to have good high school scares to, to millions who never got into horror. And for many, the cliches and tropes the characters talk about were lost on the target audience. For example, many, many never even saw the original Psycho, which is referenced a number of times in Scream. And the gulf was growing between a generation and, and the original slasher films that fueled Craven's excellent tip of the hat to the genre. It gave birth to what I call designer horror. And, and I talked about this in, in a previous podcast, and I, I did a, a cinema blog. You can uh, find it on there. It's called Designer Horror. I mean, look at the posters for like, I know what you lit did last summer, uh, its sequel, The Faculty, uh, Scream, and all its sequels, and even Halloween H2O. All the posters look almost identical. You have attractive young kids, mostly their heads, looking glossy and mysterious through the wonders of, of, of brand new Photoshop at the time. I mean, hand-drawn posters were out. 
slick and sexy photo posters of pretty girls and pretty boys were in. Just imagine the original Halloween's poster like one of those. Go take a look. You'll see what I mean. Kevin Williamson was horror's new flavor of the month, and his, his tenure on the hit TV yank show Dawson's Creek made him America's latest authority on teenagers. And as a result, Williamson knew what kids wanted in horror, so he was hired to write Halloween H2O. And get it, you know, Halloween 20 years later, H2O, I guess. I guess it's clever. I mean, it's like T2. I guess we can't say Halloween in some subtitle because we're too lazy. We just have to call it H2O. And just in case the redundant subtitle didn't spell out clearly enough on, on the poster. Williamson went on to pen the Scream sequels as well as I Know What You Did Last Summer and, and The Faculty. And we were told this was the Halloween movie to see. H2O was the Halloween film. It was going to be as good as the original. It had to be. That's why Jamie Lee returned. They lured her back so it had to be good, right? H2O gave us Jamie Lee and Josh Hartnett. It gave us the required ethnic hip-hop flavor of LL Cool J. This will be repeated by throwing rapper Busta Rhymes into the next installment, as many of you remember, as I call the, the Tyra Banks Halloween film. The film gets another free pass, similar to part two, and that's because it just went back on nostalgia. It brought Jamie Lee back, it gave reverence to a now-departed Donald Pleasance, and fans just embraced it. I mean, it opens up well enough with Donald Pleasance, or I think it was a sound alike. I'm not even sure it was him. Uh, I don't know if they used some other recordings of him, or I, I believe it was a sound alike, giving us a, a chilling convo over the original title music. And the original nurse from the 78 film makes an appearance. And then we get Jamie Lee in a new life in California. And we are back to familiar territory, and it's like coming home. The film devolves into another Lori running from Michael situation. Yes, her son is involved this time and some cute teens die and Michael cocks his head after he kills someone. Yet it's all pretty flat and it ends with what should have been the definitive conclusion. Instead, we get swindled by a cheap editorial trick when we find out how Michael makes it to the next movie. H2O offered nothing new. And maybe it was time to say, is there anything that can be offered up as, as new to this series? Again, it goes back to relevancy. I mean, what else is there? What else could possibly be done? Again, send Michael into space. I see why the filmmakers went the thorn route in, in the other films. They were at least trying to give us something different, as, as silly as that all was. How much more can you do than have Michael walking and stalking, killing people in his way, then seemingly die only to rise again? How was H2O any different than any of the other films? And this is exactly why no one wanted a sequel to the original 1978 film. Like Jaws, just what more is there to do with the story? The internet was fastening itself into mainstream society around that time, and, and fan theories sprouted trying to merge all of the films together. Laurie faked her death, started a new life in California to leave Jamie, get it, Jamie for Jamie Lee Curtis, with her relatives. Hell, I even read one that connected Halloween 3 with the original series. They they tried to connect the, the Celtic druid thorn with Connell Cochran's witchcraft. I will say this, some of these have better plot lines than the actual films. And then that takes us right into the Tyra Banks one. And you know, if you look at the poster again, you have all the pretty floating heads thanks to Photoshop and there she is, there's supermodel Tyra Banks. The designer horror tradition continued. But man, fucking Tyra Banks 
And the best part is, or the worst part, I should say, is they don't even kill her on screen. She dies off screen. We don't even get the satisfaction of watching obnoxious, all about me, Tyra Banks, get killed by Michael Myers. That might have been the film's saving grace in Halloween Resurrection. It only stood to reason to kill Jamie Lee Curtis. Michael finally gets his sister and people would pay to see it. It worked out. I guess sort of. Now I've heard Jamie got buckets of money and then I heard she really didn't get buckets of money and then I hear that if she did get buckets of money, she donated a lot of that money to uh, children's charities and stuff. I don't really care what the hell she does with her money. She's dead in the first 10 minutes or so of the film. In Resurrection, we find out the filmmakers pulled a lame cheat. Like I said, it was an editorial trick on how Michael survived decapitation at the end of H2O. On top of it all, Rick Rosenthal, the director of Halloween 2, 1981, returned to this installment and, and really, quite frankly, with the expected results. The film is a hot mess. It tried to bring in the Blair Witch type of digital feel. It threw in inexplicably, like I said, Tyra Banks and you know, they killed her off screen and you got Busta Rhymes. And he punctuates the dumbed down mentality of the entire film with Schwarzenegger style one-liners. There's bad acting, there's bad writing, bad directing, bad casting. It's just bad, folks. Like, like really fucking bad. Pretty much even the most ardent Halloween fans would, would agree with this assessment. I, I would hope. So that should be it, right? But it wasn't. Like I said, I'm, I'm not going to get into it, but they did the remakes. And while I said I'd, I'd ignore the remakes, I, I do have to just talk about them quickly. And, and that is for the remakes, I mean, there really was nowhere else to go. I mean, we ran far from Michael as far as we could with the original series of films. We went from a nightmarish classic to a silly horror soap opera that, that tried to ignore its dumbest entries only to come full circle stupid in the end. So somewhere along the line in the early 2000s, someone thought a, a remake was in order. And it was announced that Rob Zombie would take a stab at it and then love or hate the remakes. And I, I did find them to be well-made. My argument is they just were not needed. Horror was now going down the backstory road. You see, we, we need a reason for Michael's evil. Just like the Friday the 13th reboot, we give a backstory to the new Jason Voorhees. Star Wars did it with the, with the first shitty prequel, The Phantom Menace, and then continued that all the way through Revenge of the Sith. Did anyone ask for this? What was happening in society where we now had to have everything literal and we needed explanations for everything? Was it a post 9-11 world that left us asking why these things happen? Was, was it the insecurities brought up by the, the new online world that, that left us questioning everything? Conspiracy theories were treated with a new level of sincerity online. I mean, in just what do we believe? Who can we trust? The Matrix tapped into the whole are we really alive thing and life is but a dream. But why do we need all of this, you know, expository, you know, explanation and, and, and backstory stuff? Donald Pleasance's Dr. Sam Loomis summed up Michael simply in the first 1978 film. He was evil. That's it. No explanation was given to his ability to rise after gunshots and other bodily harm. He was just fucking evil. He killed his sister because he was evil. He came back on Halloween because he was evil. He had to die. That was pretty much it. There was no elaborate scientific explanation on how Michael's cells regenerate. There was no silly cult of thorn excuse. The kid was born bad. Imagine a midichlorian kind of explanation for Michael's ability not to die. 
I mean, think about it. You want that? Sometimes bad shit just happens to people. A tornado can touch down and destroy your house while leaving your neighbors untouched. Michael Myers was a supernatural tornado that touched down in Haddonfield. It destroyed indiscriminately until it was done. And that's it. We had a whole new generation of horror viewers who couldn't cope with the idea that sometimes bad things just happen and there isn't a reason. They had the internet to now explain everything to them. Every tiny detail, every useless factoid and trivia note was at their disposal. They needed answers to everything because their brains don't know how to extrapolate or even imagine. They couldn't suspend their disbelief because they were never allowed to. So in 2018, it all got handed over to Blum. You see, if you just didn't make lousy sequels for a quick buck, you wouldn't have to spend a ton more to go back and erase your mistakes. Studios have already fatigued audiences with remakes and reboots of films that, that didn't need them. Now they antagonize further by going back to erase canon. They confuse, they piss off, and, and they show that no matter how badly they treat their patrons, people will still fork over money. I once said a better strategy to remaking good films is to go back and remake the bad ones. Fix the shitty entries that did a disservice to the series. Now, Blumhouse, I felt, did a, a high-quality sequel. Uh, some fans felt that it, it missed the mark, and I'll be going into that in another podcast. I'll be talking about the 2018 film as, as we get closer to the release of, of the others. Um, that, I think, would be a good time to discuss uh, Michael Myers and, and from 2018 on. So I guess to, to sum up this podcast for today's episode is, is I want to say is no matter what, get it right. That's what I want to say to studios. Stop making deliberately shitty films. And that's right, Universal. I'm looking at you and, and this franchise and Jaws the Revenge. Do it right the first time and you won't have to do it again. Just like good teachers and parents teach us. I hope you enjoyed this brief retrospective and what I was going at for, for the franchise itself. And again, I'm, I'm ending it with the fact that I did enjoy the 2018 film, and I'm interested to see where it's going. And we'll be looking at uh, the process of the 2018 film and its, its coming sequels in a separate podcast. So this is Harrison Smith. I want to thank you for your time to listen. Have a great week. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.